Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens, in the history of the church, things get messy. And after the last couple of synods, nobody's going to disagree that things are really getting messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're having conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. It's also important for you to know that you are our marketing plan. We rely on you to spread the word about what we're doing at the Messy Reformation. We rely on you to share our content. We also rely on you to give us five-star reviews and provide good feedback for our podcast so that the algorithms push our content out into the world. You are our marketing plan. You can also support us financially on Patreon. All the money from Patreon is being used to fund online hosting and to build the platform of the Messy Reformation. You may even see a Messy Reformation conference coming in 2024. So keep your eyes peeled for an announcement. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Patrick Anthony. So Patrick, why don't you kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and the church that you're at. Well, um, I, uh, boy, um, well, I'll start with my family and the church that I'm at and I'll work back into myself. So, uh, married to Anne, um, she is, a um, a tall blonde Dutch girl and that's kind of how I got into the CRC. Um, she was raised here in Ripon, California, uh, at first CRC, they're no longer with the denomination and, um, we met in college and, uh, yeah, and uh, the first conversation we had was about predestination, and I thought, okay, I think I like this girl. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, uh, really started following Christ when I was 24. Um, I was raised sort of in a nominal, fundamentalist Christian home with sort of like a non-denominational Baptist dispensational sort of world, you know, but, you know, my mom didn't go to church, and my dad sort of became like a stronger Christian as I got older. Um, so by the time I was in high school and he was really a strong Christian, that's about when I was like, you know, and I'm kind of done with this whole thing. But when I was 24 through a, you know, whole set of circumstances, uh, the Lord, uh, really made himself real in my life. And uh, I used to say I became a Christian when I was 24. Uh, but you know, I, I prayed the prayer when I was four or five years old and was, and was baptized. And my senses now, as I reflect back on my childhood is I, I knew the Lord. I just was not discipled. I had no one come alongside me and say, hey, this is how you walk the walk of faith. And, um, and now, you know, given what I believe about baptism, now I look back and, and I believe when I was five, I wasn't really doing much, even though I thought I did. Um, but the Lord was making promises to me and he was, uh, you know, welcoming me into his family and his covenant. And uh, so when I was 24, I really started following Christ. And I met my, met my wife when I was 20. Seven, twenty-six, somewhere in there, and uh, kind of told her right away, "Hey, I want to go to seminary. 
the whole seminary thing was because once I started following Christ, I was sort of the guy who the college pastor was like, Hey, read this book. And I was like, okay, I read it. Give me another one. And, uh, and you know, that, I think I got propped up a little too soon. I was a little too immature, uh, at the church at the time, but uh, that's just kind of how churches handle guys like me. And then it was like, Hey, you should go to seminary. And I was like, okay, you know, which probably had a lot to do with wanting to please him and, you know, want, wanting to, uh, kind of have the, the, the good vibes of learning about Jesus never end. Um, and, uh, but, but God used all that. And, uh, so my wife was like, nah, I don't really want to do that, but I like you. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll work it out. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a little conflict. <laughs> yeah, I know you know how that goes, right? There's a little conflict and, uh, at the beginning of it all, um, but, but, but God was super gracious to us. We ended up moving away to Southern California to Talbot to go to seminary. Um, I, I went through the spiritual formation program. So it was a lot of Catholic mystics that I was reading. Meanwhile, we got involved at a PCA church. Meanwhile, my wife tells me she wants to baptize our kids. So I kind of had all these conflicting universes, you know, of like mystical Catholic introspection with reformed confessional, you know, while I'm going to a dispensational seminary. I mean, it was just bizarre. Uh, but the, at the, at the end, my wife's request that we baptize our children, um, and then kind of reading about covenant theology got me absorbed into that world. Um, and then I was actually on track to get ordained in the PCA when I got a call to Escalon CRC to be their uh, associate youth pastor. And, uh, that's kind of how I got into the CRC. Uh, we had two children uh, coming up to Escalon from Southern California after I graduated seminary. Uh, we had our children while I was in seminary, um, which was which was crazy. In my first half of seminary, I was going to school full time, just drinking deeply of all the goodness. The last half of seminary, I was working full time, uh, <laughs> trying to finish school and be a dad. And uh, and so it was really sweet when we got to Escalon and I could just be a pastor. Um, yeah. And so that was in 2015. Uh, now we have five children. Um, I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel CRC, which interestingly enough is only 20 minutes away from Escalon. Uh, and it's in Ripon, the town where my wife was uh, born and raised. Or not born and raised, but raised. She moved here from Chino when she was a kid. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it's pretty neat. When we were candidating for this job, she was looking out at the congregation saying, yeah, that was my sixth grade teacher and he was my basketball coach. And you know, so those are the people that we uh, that we minister to now. Um, so it's it's pretty neat. Very cool. And uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and so you graduated from Talbot. Is that where you finished yep. your seminary degree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I graduated with it. You had to do your like year of penance of the EPMC program through Calvin. Yeah, it was two years. So I did it online distance. So um, yeah, it took me two. It was it was set up to be two years at that time. It's sort of like an ever morphing program. So I'm not really sure what all, all it requires now, but yeah. Yeah, it has changed a lot. Was there, what was the feel for you going from Talbot um, and then doing, taking some classes in Calvin? You know, they were online, they were distance. Uh <laughs> You know, it, I didn't get, I think, a good vibe of what Calvin is or is about. Um, I would say that the only two really valuable classes, I mean, I, I hate to say this out loud, but the only two valuable classes were the history of the CRC and the polity classes. Yeah. Uh, the confessions, I, I thought, wasn't a deep dive into the confessions at all. It was just sort of like a skim over the top. 
Um, and then the uh, hermeneutics class was, I mean, it wasn't really, it, yeah, it wasn't much. Um, the preaching class was the four pages of the sermon. I guess I'm glad I took that because at least I have an idea of how guys coming out of Calvin are being taught how to preach sermons, but I, I didn't find that to be a very, uh, in fact, I, uh, the preaching professor, um, you know, they want, want you to end in grace every time, end in grace, end in grace, end in grace, you know, and I'm just like, okay, well, you know, uh, sometimes this, you know, the passage is, is really like a, a, a stern rebuke and, and, you know, don't you think it's gracious to, to leave the congregation just sort of with that stern rebuke one week? No, 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 no. You have to end it with, you have to put an ice cream cone in their mouth. And I, I just didn't think that was, uh, that was right or, or the way to even teach the Bible. Um, mm. You know, because the, the gospel has all kinds of different angles. Grace, you know, it's, it's gracious to know that you're a sinner. It's gracious to have sin revealed. And, and uh, it's not, it's not always got to come back to justification or always got to come back to, um, you know, the, this great thing that we marvel that Christ has done. Um, but, most of the time you get back there, right? Yeah. But, but not, not every time is a formula. Yeah. Well, I just think we've lost the understanding of what grace is, right? We, we've thought, yeah. we've treated grace like an ice cream cone. Um, right. But yeah, yeah there's, there's a saving grace and then there's transforming grace, you know? Yeah. yeah amen. Yeah. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? <laughs> you know, no. Uh, no. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, that was one of the big, uh, one of the big uh, arguments I always had at, at seminary. I always said, if at least you're going to talk about different pages, we should at least have a six-page sermon. You know, guilt, grace, gratitude would seem to fit better with yeah. our, our confessions. You know, with uh, yeah. here's how you've fallen, here's how you've been forgiven. Now here's how you live that out in the world. Seems like a a better way to to preach. But um, I didn't get a lot of traction with that one. I'd be curious what shocked. Yeah. What what kind of preaching method did they teach you at uh Talbot? Dr. Snookian. Uh yeah, it was um it, it was very much exegetical. So I took tons of uh uh Greek, I had five Greek classes and three Hebrew classes. And so I feel really confident to sit down and take apart a passage, to you know, outline it, to pull out all the, you know, uh semantics and the you know the grammar and all that kind of stuff and they, they really do like I, I feel way more comfortable preaching a short passage than I do a big a big long passage um because you know I, that's just sort of the, their take you know um and uh it was a it was a process where I basically still use it to this day uh you know opening illustration you know get into the text uh, do a three point sermon and, and conclude, conclude the sermon. Um, I, I try not to be so formulaic. I don't want to always, um, have that same outline. So the, so the congregation doesn't get bored, but man, it was just such a clear way of, of taking apart a passage that works for narratives, works for epistles, um, that it, it really kind of resonated with me. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he, he, he had a, PhD in um, communication from UCLA, the preaching mm. professor did. Mm. And so, um, so he wasn't as much a theologian or an exegete as he was just like, Hey, here's how you clearly communicate something, yeah. which, which I appreciated because they, you know, I took enough exegesis classes to, um, to make it all fit, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember, um, well, I had first, so I was very young and uh, immature when I was thrown into ministry as a youth pastor as well. Willie, I would say Willie was like one of my test subjects and he got to watch me (laughs) flail around when I first started in ministry. You were Uh, learning how to preach. I was learning how to preach. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of those guys who was um, thrown into ministry young and had no idea what I was doing, probably too soon yet. And early on in my ministry, someone had taught me, and I'm going to put that in quotes, taught me how to preach by coming up with like five or six, three minute stories. That was the, that was the way to preach. Mm. You know, I'd have all the five or six, three minute stories. And that was really engaging. And it was going to be good for the young people, you know, because they have short attention spans. And so three minute stories are like a commercial and it's terrible. I started off that way because I had no other way on how to communicate. Right. And then, uh, and right. then I heard, then I heard John Piper preach and I remember going, he doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that. I want to preach like that. Like I listened to him preach yes. and my heart was on fire and I wanted to know yes. God's word. And, and so I, I remember digging around online for a while and I found, and he still has it. If you go to the desiring God website um, and dig around a little bit, he has a four part series on, on teaching on how to preach. I think I don't remember what it's called. Preaching at I think it's called preaching as worship, is, is what it is. Or he likes to say expository exaltation or whatever you mm-hmm. know. But sure, yeah. But he does. He goes through his. He has this like arcing method that he learned, where you're breaking down a passage and you're working out the logic of the text, and and that just really resonated with me to help me be. I'm like. If I work through the logic of the text, like here's what they're arguing, here's their main points, here's why they're making these main points. And then he said, then after you do that, then you base your sermon off of that line of argumentation. And I thought, yeah. boy, that that forces you then to be very directly yeah. connected to the text. Um, and And he's not like as formulaic as some people want to make him because he'll say, you know, you can have like, five points in a passage and you should probably preach those five points, but you don't have to preach all five of them in that order. You can preach point three up here. And as long as you're preaching them for the same reason that the text is giving them, you can move those points around a little bit if it's going to help flow for your audience. And so, you know, sometimes I I make fun of the four page message all the time or the four page method all the time, but there is something to starting out with trouble, right. And trying to help people see like, Here's here's how they f- failed in the text. Here's how we fail. And now here's where grace comes in. And here's how we... And so I'll take that out. If that's at the very end of the passage, sometimes I'll move yeah. it up, bring it up to the front or whatever. But that, that's yeah. been like my main method. And Wyma kind of taught that at the seminary a little bit too. But he had this... We had this weird tension in Wyma's class where he would teach us all the, the literary analysis stuff and say like, this is a great way to preach. And then when we had to write our sermon for the class, we had to write a four-page sermon. <laughs> and I'm like, it feels like, like Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So well. BibleArc.com, there, there's like a, there's a whole bunch of, like I took the bracketing class on there. There's a paraphrasing class I took on there. I never did take the arcing one. Um, but, but that, all that stuff is super helpful. And it, and it did, um, it did harmonize a lot with uh, the, the exegesis classes I took from seminary. Um, so yeah, it's, it, Piper's stuff is good, man. I, I had the same, uh, you know, they, they say Piper is the, uh, gateway drug to reform theology for the new restless and reformed crowd that got swept into it in the last 20 years, which probably in some degree we're, we're all part yeah. of. 
Hmm. That's a fair point. Now, Jason, I got to ask, was that before or after you just started yelling at us from the pulpit on Wednesdays? (laughs) (laughs) So so I started yelling at you when I went through my Mark Driscoll phase. Okay. That's about Uh, right. um, That explains it. I remember going, you know, every preacher, as you're learning your voice, you kind of like mimic people, right? Because I was like, man, Mark Driscoll, he's passionate. I love that passion. I want to. And so I started kind of find my voice in that. And then, yeah, Willie. And then a couple of our leaders came up to me and they're like, Jason, you you just got to stop. You're like a caged lion up there. (laughs) (laughs) You're way too intense. Well, I, I, I showed up every Wednesday and I'm like, why is he so mad every Wednesday? <laughs> yeah, is he mad had, at me? I had one of our students though came up to me, and this was actually a gut punch. He was trying to he was trying to like show appreciation to me, and he was like, "Man, I just love when you preach. I just I walk away feeling so guilty every week." <laughs> and I was like. Oh, that's not the gospel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I need to go change something. <laughs> so I went on a long right. journey trying to figure out how to preach uh, effectively, biblically. Um, and then you, and every preacher does this. You kind of start, I tried to mimic John Piper for a while too. And sure. John Piper, yeah. God's given me something different. So it takes a long time though, to kind of fall into your voice and just be comfortable kind of being you. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So still, yeah, I went through my Tim Keller phase too. Yeah. 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 So so you ended up as an uh you said an associate youth pastor. Is that what you said your your title was? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great, great place to start. So Dave Vandermulen was my uh, senior pastor there, and so uh we got to be like roommates at Senate this past year. And uh he's a good friend and uh it was an, he was an awesome guy to just come in and work under. It was actually the position he'd had for 12 years. They hired him as the lead pastor and brought me in to take his role. So I got to preach one Sunday a month on the morning. I got to preach once or twice in the evening. Uh, and then I took care of youth group and I, they ordained me. Uh, I sat with the elders. Like it was just a really great place to learn how to be a lead pastor without having the pressure um, of being the lead pastor. And so, uh, yeah, just watching Dave, he, he's a consummate professional and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really great experience. And so what went into your, then moving out of that position of youth ministry, going into a senior pastor role? Well, it was a couple things. One, Esquan is a growing, booming church, and they were understaffed. And so Dave and I would talk about, um, you know, what would it look like for me to, to just be an associate pastor and then hire uh, a youth director. Um, but the problem is Dave and I shared too many gifts, and we both wanted to preach. So I kind of knew, like, you know, whoever the associate pastor here is going to be, it's going to be someone who handles more pastoral care stuff, and, and that, that wasn't going to be me. Um, I also knew I didn't want to just do youth. I also felt called to preach. And so it just kind of seemed like, Hey, I got to, I got to look for something else. And then I saw sort of in the classes notes that uh, the pastor from Emmanuel was retiring. And uh, it was uh, during COVID uh, June of 2020, I came here and did like pulpit supply. And I, uh, I went home and I told my wife, I said, Hey, it was a really good vibe over there. And I actually heard the pastor's retiring, you know? And so I texted my friend Craig and I said, Hey, 
Uh, I heard, you know, Pastor Ken's retiring and he texted back and he said, as a matter of fact, he is. And I'm the head of the search committee. Are you interested? <laughs> so I met with Craig and the uh, president of council and we kind of discerned the best way to go about it was just for me to apply when they posted the job. And so like eight months later, they posted the job. I applied and then, yeah, one thing led to another. It was super hard to leave Escalon because we just had good friends there. Um, but uh, it's been it's been amazing being here. The, the church has embraced me and my family. Um, it's uh, it's been a great community for my kids. Um, my kids didn't have to change schools, uh, and it's yeah, it's been great. Amen. So I want to kind of change gears a little bit, and we're going to start talking uh, Synod 2023 a little bit. Um, but before we even dive into what happened at Synod 2023, I want to know. Uh, what were you thinking when you let your name stand to go to this synod? <laughs> um, I guess I wasn't thinking anything. So my friend Mark Van Dyke, who I passed with here in town, he's uh, the host of the um, Reform Podmatics. He came up to me, or I ran into him, and I had even considered going to synod. And he said, hey, I really think you should put your name up to go to synod. And I was like, oh, no, that's that's not me. Because I'm from the outside the CRC. I actually haven't felt connected to the CRC as a denomination, even as a lead pastor. Um, and I just felt like, you know, I don't really, it's not my thing, you know. So I went home and I talked to my wife about it because we have five children. So me going to Synod would require her, you know, support. And she said, absolutely, you should go. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's like, you always complain about things and decisions that are made in the CRC. Well, this is your chance to go and, and, and say something and, and have your voice be heard. And I was like, oh, well, if she's in support of it, well, then maybe I should think about it, you know? And so then basically, I think I told the classes the same thing. Hey, Mark, Mark said I should put my name up. My wife said it was, she was for it and I'm willing to go. That's pretty much all I said. And, uh, and then, yeah, me and Dave got voted. Dave had gone the year before. We, we got voted to go back. And, uh, and yeah, I, w- I was excited, nervous, didn't really know what to expect. Um, started, uh, I was shocked that I got put on the committee that I was put on. I, I thought for sure I was going to be on like the new guys committee, you know, whatever that <laughs> committee is. I don't know. <laughs> you know? And, uh, uh, but I was excited. It made me read the, the, um, agenda with a lot more zeal than I, than I probably would have otherwise. It made me try to figure out what my, convictions were about you know you know subscription and uh, whether it's you know whether we as reformed people can take exceptions you know coming from the pca they, they do allow uh exceptions and uh yeah so i just started reading about that and trying to sort that whole thing out and uh by the time i got to extended i was uh i was excited and ready to begin yeah well i was too, well, i don't know if i could say i was excited so yeah, yeah. Patrick was on committee eight with me. And so I can't say yeah. I was excited, but I was ready to begin because I was tired of studying, yeah. talking. I was just ready to like, we got, we got to get to work and come to down to some conclusions here. Um, yeah. It was a blessing. It was a blessing having you on the committee. I was, uh, I was like, man, and man. it was funny. A few people were like, you, you and Patrick must've known each other for a while. Some people who are kind of suspicious. I'm like, I'd never met this guy in my life. I never even met him. No, I met him. You called me. Yeah. Yeah. You called me Anthony like the second day. And I was like, ah, that's fine. I get called Anthony all the time. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so it was funny, but but I'm like, oh, he he was just so helpful in the committee. Yeah. And so so had you heard about so you know, if for those who don't know uh, anybody listening to this probably does know, but committee eight was dealing around discipline around Neeland and, and uh, some of the other churches and then Gravamen. And so did you kind of know what was going on with these churches and around the issues around Gravamen leading up to this, or was this kind of new stuff for you coming in? You know, I, I, did, I knew it by the time I got to Synod. Um, but before I even went to Synod, I, um, had vaguely considered, you know, whether it was allowable to take exceptions. Actually, it's interesting. We hired a worship pastor at our church and um, he is from a Baptist background. And, uh, and, you know, we were bringing him in from uh, New Zealand. This is a long story, which I won't tell here and bore everybody with, but it's an awesome story. And we're bringing him in from New Zealand. And as part of the, the um, R1 visa that he had to come over on, he had, he had, going to have to be ordained in order to remain here. And so we had to consider as a church, like, hey, are we hiring a worship pastor or are we hiring a worship director? Mm-hmm. And we decided, hey, this is God's way of helping us see that we're hiring a worship pastor and so we're going to bring him in. We're going to get him ordained as a commissioned pastor. Uh, well, I thought that he could just take an exception to the whole Baptist thing. So anyway, we're reading books together on Zoom leading up to him coming while we're trying to uh, immigrate him here. And we start talking about engine baptism. We start talking about theology. Anyway, he, he ends up coming to a place where he, he accepts infant baptism. Um, so by the time he gets here in May, before I go to a synod, we actually baptize his children, his nine-year-old, uh, six-year-old, and four-year-old. Praise God. And all that was happening as I was coming to convictions about uh, subscription. And I realized how, how kind God is to me. Uh, because my convictions that I was coming to as I was preparing to go to Synod were that we would not have been able to ordain him. <laughs> yeah. And and actually, I, I didn't know that at the time. You know, I just come in from the PCA background. I thought, oh, he could just take an exception to the um, uh, baptism aspect of this. And, you know, do 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 because I'm not a polity expert. I've never pretended to be. Although I am finding myself a lot more mesmerized and interested by it. Um, yeah post-Synod than I ever was before. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really did come to the, the conviction that like, no, 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 there ought not to be exceptions to our confessions and that, and that really this is a holistic um, theology that has implications in every aspect of theology and life. And, and you, it really does come as a whole, you know, you can't part it out. Yeah. What was it as you were kind of studying and preparing uh, that, that brought you to that point? Uh, like what, what were some of the things that brought you to that point of saying, Oh, I, I get that. We're not, we're not a denomination that allows exceptions. Yeah. So I think the idea of like, what is unity? So, so I remember taking the, it was the history class, I think. And I had to write a paper or maybe it was the polity class. Yes. It was the, well, it was maybe both those classes combined. So, cause I took them both over the summer and in the history class in the CRC, what I noticed is if you track the history of the CRC from their inception uh, through the breakup from the PR church in the 20s uh, to the URC thing with women in office in the 90s up until now, the thing that emerged for me as I studied this is that, man, that the CRC is almost committed to unity ahead of theology. So meanwhile, I'm taking the, the, the polity class and I had to write a, a, 
uh, a paper on an overture or something like that. Anyway, it was the most random overture at the time. Somebody had suggested that we add um, a Harvest USA to our list of approved um, uh, groups that you can take uh, offerings for. Well, Harvest USA is kind of a PCA group. They, they help people who struggle with same-sex attraction and sexual addiction. But that got turned down because their definition of uh, mm-hmm. homosexuality was different than the 1973 def- definition of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. So that's, that sent me on a whole, you know, studying about, about that. And, and what I kind of came to was that the CRC is doomed unless we value theology and our uni- unity around theology ahead of being unified. Because if, if you value unity ahead of something that you unified about, what you end up being unified around is the fact that we're unified, which is absurd. And you, you, you cannot be unified around that. Right. And you kind of see that right now going on the CRC. We're trying to figure out what's our identity. We have all these disparate groups now that have sort of come into the CRC or have emerged out of the CRC. Uh, and, and we're all together in one denomination, but what is it that's going to truly unify us? And I think that's the question that we're trying to ask right now. Uh, how, how big can the tent be? Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I've kind of lost track and yeah. don't know no, if I even great. answered your question. Yeah, you yeah. did. And, you know, for me, it was um, as simple as just carefully reading through the covenant for office bearers and, and just a couple of lines. Sure. The like, yeah, agree. Right. Um, and, uh, and then in the covenant for office bearers, we make a commitment to promote and defend the doctrines. Yes. I don't understand how anybody can take exception to our doctrines and say they wholeheartedly agree with all the doctrines, right? Or how can you take exception to those doctrines and then commit before God (laughs) and people that you're going to promote those and defend those doctrines? And, you know, most people who take exception, especially um, especially when it comes on issues of baptism, they say, well, I'm just going to, I'll be here. I'm just not going to teach against it. And it's like, okay, but, but you're, you made a commitment to promote that doctrine and defend that doctrine and believe it. Yeah. Right. And believe it. Right. And, and that was a big discussion in my committee. If I can just weigh in here. Um, when it came time to have the discussion about what confessional status means over against settled and binding language. Um, I was discussing this with somebody and, and they said, what I really genuinely want to do is leave space for people who aren't sure yet. And I said, but my problem with that is the door that is open for them is the same door that is open for those who are very sure (laughs) and who just want to teach contrary to our confessions. That's why I I believe the door has to be shut for both. Right. Well, and then there's more language in the covenant of office affairs that that applies to this, that really stuck out to me. And it's the language of, this is what, um, oh man, uh, locates us within the broader uh, body of Christ. And so I think, I think being able to say that this is who we are, and, and that we're not necessarily saying that somebody else, like a Baptist, for example, is not a Christian. We're just saying that they're located elsewhere in the body of Christ. And, and that's got to be okay. But when you value unity and you value unifying around the people who all just happen to be in your church no matter what, 
And you're trying to, you're trying to wiggle your doctrine around to kind of like fit the people who attend your church rather than teaching those people your doctrine. Then you end up having the cart, you know, in front of the horse or whatever that saying is, right? It's, it, we need to be bold with like, hey, we need it. If this is what we believe, then, then we ought to teach it. We ought to wholeheartedly promote it. We ought to love it and think it's the truth. Now, we just started reading uh, uh, Kuiper's book on Calvinism uh, with my staff, uh, you know, my uh, the worship pastor and the youth director. And uh, it's been so encouraging to hear how Kuiper is like, no, no, this is the best. Calvinism yeah. is the pinnacle of theology. And it, it is the reason that all these good things have come to the Western world over the last 500 years. Now, he may be wrong about that. I don't necessarily believe he is. Uh, but I just love his conviction about it and that, and that he's unapologetic about it. And he, and he says, like, look, this is, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is the benefit of believing this, not only for the church, but for the world. And, and I'm unapologetic about it. And I think sometimes we get into this sense of like, well, we just want everybody to go along, to get along. We're afraid of hurting people's feelings. And, and that's not good. So funny thing, on Sunday, I preached the story of uh, Jesus uh, confronting the Pharisees in Holy Week. And uh, he asked him about John the Baptist. Did his, uh, did his baptism come from heaven or was it from man? And they're like, well, if we say it was from heaven, uh, you know, then I can't remember exactly what they say. But if we say it's from man, then, you know, they love John and they're going to stone us. So we, we don't know. And what struck me about that is that is to say that I don't know uh, for any other reason than you actually don't know is, is, is to sin. Right. It, it's to say like, hey, look, I don't know uh, because I am afraid of how you're going to receive it or you're going to respond to it is, is to love, is to fear man rather than to fear God, basically. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and I just think that there would be so much freedom that would come from being able to stand firmly on two feet and say, no, this is what we believe. And, and we don't have to do the work. The hard work's been done. It's all contained in our confessions. And if we find that something's wrong with our confessions, well, we can simply change that. Yeah. Right. We don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Just jumping on those lines. It's been funny as I've been having these uh, conversations in the CRC for a long time, we're, we're in this weird place because people are reacting to this, like, even kind of Kuiper mentality. We're like, well, reformed theology is the best. Of course it's the best, you know? And it's, and people are like, well, that was prideful. And so we need to be humble and just accept that blah, 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 blah. And, and I still remember talking to someone and I'm like, he's like, well, you can't think you're right all the time. I'm like, of course I think I'm right. If I thought I was wrong, I wouldn't believe it. And I'm like, right. Like you think you're right that maybe we don't know these things, but you still think you're right. And like, we don't need yes. to be ashamed of saying, of course, I think I'm right. Convince me that I'm wrong. That's fine. But of course I think I'm right. And then if I think I'm right, I think I'm believing the best of all possible ideas out there. And so why don't we just say it? I mean, we should unashamedly right. say it. And that's, and what's interesting is just even culturally right now, that's what I think people are looking for. We're, we're kind of moving out of this like fuzzy, like, well, we all kind of don't know, but some, a lot of people are starting to reject that and say, no, we want people to say, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. Take it or leave it. And, uh, and the yeah. CRC is actually positioned to do really well in that kind of an environment. If we actually hold 
to, to what our polity is. And so I think even a strict subscriptionist kind of model, people are worried that it's going to have kick have us kicking people out all over the place. But I think actually people are saying, we just want to come because we want to know what you believe, why you believe it and where you stand. And then we can, then we can have conversations based on that. Well, especially too, if it's grounded in the word of God. So it's yeah. like, you know, I think you can have, you can have sort of like the political strongman right now who, who comes strong with the take and gets lots of followers. Um, people are, are just in awe. They think he's so great. Um, and if the, the way to avoid that is to, is to, is to really be grounded in the whole of God's word, right? The whole counsel of God, which is that, that I, as a pastor, am called to love and to serve. Uh, I am, I am not called to, to rule and to, you know, be my way or the highway. Um, but I can be confident about what God's word says. Like one of the things I said in my sermon on Sunday was like, I was like, look, my authority comes 100% because I'm teaching what God's word says. As soon as I deviate from what God's word says, then I have no authority. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gone. Right. And I am also too, as a, as a pastor, it's like, I, I'm not the most brainiac guy. Um, I, I think of myself more as like a general practitioner. I need to know a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, and so I love the confessions because I'm constantly returning to them. I'm constantly coming back to them to check my theology and to, and to remind myself, you know, what's the, what's the really great way that, you know, this theology is articulated? Oh, well, let's look at, you know, Belgic Confession, Article 5, and see what it has to say about the authority of Scripture. Great. Couldn't have said it better myself. In fact, why don't we just quote that in the sermon? Yep. And, uh, and we just have this, this broad base of thrilling theology already communicated for us. That as long as we're sticking to the text, uh, sticking to what the, the, the great men in the past have written that we have that's been, you know, withstood the test of time, man, that really adds to this confidence of leading. And I think that people, what what you were talking about there is they're talking about a a strong leader who has knowledge, who has conviction, but also loves and prays for and and yearns for the spiritual growth of the the people that that they're leading. Amen. Amen. So, so I want to dive in a little bit and we, you know, we got to be careful of what yeah. we talk about as far as what happened in committee, but what was your general experience being on committee eight? Oh man. You know, the funny thing is, is we were in a room with no windows I know. and it was just, it was just this bizarre sort of um, twist of fate that, that we would be a committee that met so much and so intensely and it, and it sort of, there was this sense of like, man, we are in it together. Like it, like it added to this whole, you know, we are going to shoulder to shoulder, dig into this and, and figure it out. We were like in a bunker. That's what it felt like, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I, my sense was uh, from the very beginning, you, you, you would ask the question about like, Hey, say, say something, by the way, you did a great job of sharing it. Like, uh, I kind of knew where you stood on the subject matter just because of this podcast. Um, but I, I, I can honestly say that somebody who was a fly on the wall sitting in that room would never have known any of that. Um, and, uh, and you'd ask the question from the beginning, uh, something along the lines of, you know, say something that you're excited about or something that you really care about. Or something, oh, no, something you're afraid of, something you care about. And you can kind of see where things were, right? Because um, what people were afraid about I don't remember that, but the thing that they really cared about, some people said, you know, hearing from the Holy Spirit, 
And then some people said, standing on the word of God and the confession. And it's like, and I knew right from the back, okay, that's our divide. And, and it really was, right? Because that, that's kind of where it comes down to. It's, a, it's an epistemological thing, right? So do I, do I believe that God has spoken uh, and, and, I can, and I can rest in what he has said? Or do I believe that he is speaking something new and that I, that I need to hear it? And so, and so because that's the difference, um, the passion and the sincerity and the love, you, you could really see that, that people were really speaking their heart. They were, they were talking from their convictions. And, and it really allowed for, um, I think, two things. One, us to really get to the, the issues that, that were at stake, clearly, um, because people cared enough to, to sort through that. Um, and then uh, I had another point, but, oh, and we cared about each other. It's like, you really got to know the person, right? So it wasn't like, a, um, and people, if they said something out of line, there was, a, there was an apology, or you'd see people go up to people during break and just say, hey, just so you know. And, and it was like, no, I totally understand. And I don't know, it was just a good vibe. And even when we finally divide at the end on the two, uh, the two reports, uh, we almost kind of helped each other put, put, the, put them together, right? It wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like we're trying to hang the other person out to dry. No, no, we want you to have the best version of what you're going to say uh, to go to the floor with. Um, but then when I felt like when it got to the floor, there was, it kind of sort of became a sense of like, well, I don't really know that person over there. It was, it was really strange how, how that happened. I know people have said something similar before in describing it, but I'm not really sure how to wrap my mind around that because it almost felt like when, once you got to the floor, that was when the decision had to be made. And, and that's when the stakes were just so high. I, I man, it was. Uh, I remember telling Dave when we got in the van to drive away. I said, "I'm never coming back here again. This is <laughs> this is too much for me. I'm not made for this, you know." And uh, that lasted about 12 hours. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I liked uh, the committee so much that 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 floor experience was just so like different that. Uh, yeah, it was not as enjoyable, but it was important, too. That's all we have for this week. If you want to help us out and support the Messy Reformation, another thing you can do is head on over to themessyreformation.com, look in the menu bar, and find Join the Reformation. By clicking on that, you can sign up for our newsletter where you'll get episodes sent right directly to your email inbox, and it will give us the opportunity to communicate with our audience, which is one of the biggest struggles of a podcast. So head on over there and sign up for our newsletter. Now, stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Patrick Anthony. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation. <laughs>